Welcome to season four of the Religion Podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Joel, shalom, my friend. How about it, rabbis Eric's? So, well, I I could barely keep up with just being one rabbi. Don't pluralize me. Don't make me be two. <laughs> Don't make me be two. So, Joel, I know of at least one listener that we have to our podcast. Wow, that's great. I do too. She lives with you. <laughs> yes, that's right. She always she sent listens. me a love. She sent me a lovely text uh, a few days ago. Nice. She really liked the last couple episodes, so I I don't know why, but she did. But so be it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope other people did too. I used to have a guy that helped me uh, learn Greek when I was in seminary, and we called him for some reason Rabuni. What would that ending on Rabbi mean, Rabuni? Well, the E is like, could be my, you know, possessive first plural. So my something. Um, I bet that was a biblical Hebrew thing. And if you asked me 20 years ago, I might, I might have known the answer. (laughs) That's probably what it was. It probably meant my rabbi, something like that. I like that. Um, There's something about that nun, the nu sound, but I'm not remembering it. Well, Wes Goldsberry, if you are still out there practicing your Greek and Hebrew and playing the fiddle, um, my Rabuni, I'm, uh, <laughs> I was grateful for your tutelage when I was in seminary. That's nice. Holy cow, dude. It's not our topic today. We're talking about money. But holy cow, Israel is a wacky storm of stuff right now. I, let's, we don't have to go deep into it today or anything, but good oh. grief. What is it like to be an American rabbi and watch the nation state of Israel over there go through all of this stuff? Oh, man. I... I appreciate the way you phrased the question. And I, if, I, if I may just amend your question, a touch is a uh, liberal American rabbi. Because not <laughs> – eh, no, really. And, and I'm not trying to be glib because not, you know, not everyone feels the way I do or the majority of my congregation does. But, I, you know, I'll speak from kind of the, you know, mainstream movements of reform and conservative Judaism in that it is not good. And it's not good for so many reasons. You know, first of which is, you know, Netanyahu is seemingly uh, intentionally destroying the democratic process, which, you know, of course, brings back some PTSD memories of what happened in America the past six years. And, you know, of course, on uh, January 6th, you know, last year, but, um, you know, by what, what he is attempting to do, if I understand correctly, is basically take away the Supreme Court's power so that it is no longer as much of a check on the executive branch. So think about the way it is here, right? You know, we make laws that presidents make, you know, uh, presidential, what are they called? Presidential. Executive orders. Yeah. Yeah. Executive orders. Thank you. And, you know, eventually, depending on um, how controversial they are, the repercussions of them, some of them go to the Supreme Court and some of them get overturned. And that's the way we are supposed to work. Like that is, that is, that is evidence of a working system. And in, that's the same way in Israel. The Supreme Court on several different occasions has have gone against um, what the government has said. And Netanyahu is trying to kind of not allow that to happen. And gosh, it's not good. And the things that he wants to do are, if I can be so bold as to use a strong word, uh, racist, hateful, Fear-mongering. Um, they certainly aren't good for the 
reformed Jewish person, the, the, the Jew in Israel that, um, doesn't align themselves with the standard orthodoxy there, which by the way, if you do align yourself with orthodoxy, that's completely fine. I am not saying that that's not okay, but it's not okay to force that. And one example that anyone can understand, if not agree with, is the egalitarian nature of the Western Wall. So everyone knows what the Western Wall is, the Kotel. So right now, there is a very, very small women's section and a much larger men's section. And there have been talks in years that that it was going to kind of be 50-50 and full egalitarian, uh, which unfortunately is not the case. But it may even be more um, narrow in terms of access. And that's what it's all about is access. And, you know, who has access to religion? Who are the gatekeepers? Who decides the rules? And that is the kind of stuff Netanyahu's playing with, um, both politically and religiously. And as an aside, it's not, you know, <coughs> excuse me, you got me so worked up. I'm, I'm coughing now <laughs> that, you know, I'm not trying, not to make this about me, but, you know, to answer your question, how is it being a, a rabbi during this? It's really hard because it is, it is really hard to kind of publicly front facing show support and love for Israel when I am incredibly conflicted right now. Now, I do absolutely love Israel. It is without a question. You know, I, I still call it the homeland for the Jewish people. There is something very special and spiritual about it for Jews that is not the case with other places. And, you know, I don't know, you know, we don't have a trip planned right now. And the, our next one would probably be in a few years. But hypothetically, if I did have a congregational trip planned, let's say for this year, I don't think I would be as excited about it as I have been or would be if if circumstances were changed. So that's, that's a very short, <laughs> Joel's like, that wasn't very short. Um, <laughs> you know, kind of top of the mind thoughts on it. I, you know, I, I had a feeling we'd be addressing it in some ways. How could we not? So, you know, I appreciate you thinking of it. Yeah, that's it. How could we not? It's, it's so awkward and it's awkward for the PCUSA Presbyterian pastors. When I say that word Presbyterian, I need people to remember that about 70% of Presbyterians in the United States are PCUSA, but the other 30% are not. They are other kinds of Presbyterian, which are typically way more conservative about certain things. And in the PCUSA, it's very typical for us to challenge the nation state, the leadership of Israel, for how it treats its people and its citizens and its strangers and its guests. Um but geez, dude, in your in your scriptures, the the great prophets were very disappointed in the political leadership of the nation state because they were not leading in a holy way. They were not hospitable to neighbors and strangers and immigrants. They were obstructive. They were going to war more often. They were not playing nice with their northern or eastern neighbors. They they broke all kinds of holy traditions in order to keep and hold power and money for themselves. And it feels to me like BB is at it again. If it feels like he's decided, you know what? I don't care what human rights are. I don't even care what citizen rights are. What I want is special privilege for those who support me and agree with me. And I want the ability to punish those who don't support me and agree with me, regardless of their religious or political or national identity. And he's willing to go against Jews now if they resist him. And when the courts stand up for a minority um, against him, he wants to wipe the court away. And I just like, good grief, this guy is out of line. That's right. And, you know, I, 
you know this, I'm sure, and most of our listeners probably know this, you know, he's been embroiled in corruption charges for the past how many years? And, you know, it, it's, there's just so much, for lack of a better, you know, intelligent word, ickiness involved in this whole thing. And it, yeah, it's just, it's not good. It is not good. Well, there's our transition. The corruption of BB is all about power and money. Why in the heck does money continue to drive and push human beings of all religions and nationalities to do amazingly shameful things? What is it about money that uh, sinks us into sin so quickly? Well, I've already uh, gotten on my soapbox for a little while. Um, th- 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 go ahead and share your your initial thoughts first, and then and then w- why don't we go from there? All right. Well, we're doing uh, money today. I don't know what y'all have heard about money when you've gone to church. One of the things that grosses me out about church or religion or anything is when they beg me for money. Um, they're like, oh my gosh, I needed your money. We're so glad you're here, but pay us something so we can keep doing what we do. That always comes across as kind of disingenuous and a, a little icky was the word that uh, <laughs> Rabbi Herrick used a minute ago. Uh, but there's, there does seem to be a, a truthful reality, even from Jesus's own mouth, that if you believe in something, if you want community to be more just and holy, it is going to take all of our resources in order to help build that, which means we're going to have to let go of control of some of our time and our money in order to build the more beautiful kingdom. And so I do appreciate when a religious leader or community asks me and others to give some of what we brought our time and money to build something beautiful. But I find that religious leaders sometimes want money not to build anything other than their own pocketbook. I sometimes find that individuals are unwilling to let go of money, even if it's to build kingdom. And I'm I want to stand somewhere today with you and figure out why do religious leaders and political leaders use money wrongly for their own benefit instead of for the great communal benefit? Why do some good-hearted community members hoard money instead of releasing it to build good communal kingdom with one another? What is it about money that makes us so greedy and selfish and hoardy instead of uh, generous and sharing. And, and I'm, I still don't get it. Well, those, those are some hard questions, Joel. (laughs) Um, I mean, they're the right ones to ask without, without a question. Um, You know, I think a large part of it is human nature and, you know, I think we, I'll say the positive first, we're, we're good at sharing things that aren't limited, <laughs> but once, once there's a little bit of self-interest involved where, okay, giving you something means I'm not going to have it or I'm going to have less of it, that then becomes a little different. And I think, um, you know, the religious aspects of money from the standpoint of should one have it what should one do with it what is it is it inherently good is it inherently bad i mean all of these questions are ones that i think all of our religions say something or not more not just something but a lot about right because you know money is along with time and talent is part of our greatest resources in terms of things we can do to help partner with God in both the creation and the repair of the world. Nice. So what are some of the things that the Bible does say or that prophets said or that Torah teaches 
about money, the use of it, the gathering of it, the spending of it. What comes to mind if you think of some of the real things Scripture says and some of the myths that people think Scripture says about money? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll say um, the first thought that came to my mind is the you know the tithing of fields that it, it's a uh, it's a commandment that. Uh, part of your fields lie fallow and that goes toward what we call tzedakah toward the the root of that word means righteousness uh it's commonly translated as charity which is a which is wonderful but it in it, it's actually charity is a weaker word than righteousness in my mind um but that's one. Uh, the idea of a sabbatical that, you know, people sometimes know that like professors and clergy and other, other people sometimes get sabbaticals. But where it comes from is actually the land that God commands that the land every seven years gets a sabbatical. And part of that sabbatical is a removal of debts so that people don't continue down the the kind of the spiral of poverty that everything is kind of reset every 7 years which you know in our society I I don't know not only is that perhaps not possible I don't even know if I would say that that's preferable but the idea of providing some sort of method for people to kind of gain in um in wealth and and in their own ability to kind of live lives of uh dignity right and then uh, the other thing i'll say and this is something i talk about all the time in my congregation is in judaism everyone must give tzedakah even the absolute poorest person so there's this idea that ingrained in the nature of holiness is a sense of giving and of selflessness, even if you're also the recipient of that same selflessness, you are still obligated to give nonetheless. Yay. I, I love it. Um, because that reminds us giving is not about a personal exemption. It's about a communal responsibility. And, and I think that's, like if I try to think about how, say, American uh, capitalistic, individualistic ways of thinking have stained American religious presumptions of money, and then how Christian, particularly Christian, uh, preachers have misused money, the thought of it and religious teachings about it, to affect America – those two mm. are are resisting one another in ways that makes it really hard for us to remember the things you just said. Like, for example, there was a time when tithing wasn't money, right? Money wasn't really a thing. I had sheep, you know, or I had bales of grain, or I had I had stuff that other I had way too much stuff than I needed, and other people needed some of my stuff, and they had stuff that. I needed and wanted some of, and so we bartered. We traded some of my stuff for some of your stuff, and there wasn't a money thing necessarily in between. Only the rich, really, had currency. The poorer, mediums and poorers, bartered. So if I was if I was a landowner, a shepherd, and I had 214 sheep, everybody in the neighborhood knew I had 214 sheep. They walked by my house and counted them. <laughs> so when it came time for me to tithe one-tenth of that, they knew if I was cheating or not. Did I take 21 of my 214 sheep, one-tenth, to the communal depository? And if I held back, everybody knew I was a tax cheat, a ta right? I didn't, they didn't have to, I didn't have to submit my IRS forms. They, they watched me shepherd one-tenth of my flock up the road. That's exactly right. And there was also, in some ways, I think, a reliance on one another. Like, you might have had all the sheep, 
but you may not have had any access to building materials. Whereas the person who had all of the wood for building materials needed sheep. Obviously it's a gross analogy, but, um, yeah. But, and the community know, we, center, we, the synagogue, the religious center was a place to help judge who really is struggling and doesn't have enough and needs communal help. Cause if you, tithe, if everybody tithed, one-tenth of everything they had to the grand community center, and then somebody lost everything, that was fire insurance. That was land insurance. That was home insurance. That was life insurance. That was widow insurance. They didn't have big big insurance companies to cover. And they didn't need emergency homeless shelters because the big community center, the synagogue, kept one-tenth of everybody's stuff and doled it out wisely to the community member that was in trouble. And guess what? They didn't just hold it back for citizens. If a traveler came through town from out of nowhere and needed help, they could stop at the community center and collect from the one-tenth on the judgment of the priests and leaders of that of that synagogue and temple to help that person in need. But something happened where religion stopped thinking of it that way. Well, and I think certainly in the West, like we equate or lots of people equate success with money like when you when some and i've i've done this too when someone says oh you know they do this and they were really successful like that means they have a lot of money it doesn't mean they have integrity it doesn't mean that they're loyal to their workers it doesn't mean that they're a good person and gives back to the community they may be all those things and god willing they are but typically when someone says oh they've been really successful what they mean is the business makes a lot of money and so that that becomes the kind of goal right like that's that's how we prove we're successful um and, you know, one of the things I think is interesting and slightly um, uh, in tension with one another is as clergy, like, this is how we make money, right? And we make good salaries. Um, and, it, you know, I'm not – by no means am I saying we don't deserve them and, like, some <laughs> – like someone in one of our congregations be like, oh, we need to pay them less because they, they understand this tension. But, but you know, I, I think there is a way to be in a capitalist society and have a lifestyle and also practice the religious values that come along with what we're teaching. Now, you know, if, if, if this is my problem – well, one of my problems with kind of the, you know, the evangelical 976 number preachers, because it's all about the money. It's it's really not about the teachings or the community or the obligation. Um, and so clearly it's it's out of balance there. Um, yeah, let's let's go there for a second. That's the that's where to go. Yeah. The pros in the Christianity it's called prosperity gospel, where Christian pastors yes. are selling if you blank, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, God will reward you with wealth, with money. And and God, oh my, if you ever hear a preacher put, if blank, then God gives money, that person does not know God yet. Um, it's, I And I'm going to say that, like big time out loud, for, if there's a preacher who's promising you money from God for your specific actions, that person is oh, apostate, hypocrite, dangerous. Do not follow that scriptural teaching because it's not scriptural. Is there an equivalent of prosperity gospel in Judaism? There's not. I mean, even that term, and I'm aware of, you know, some churches have a, a reputation for kind of preaching that. Um, no, I don't think there is an equivalent. Well, I, I do know also in our American culture and around money that there is a dangerous 
untrue stereotype about Jewish and money, right? That Jews are in it for the money. And the reason why Jews exist is to get more of your, our, my money. That um, yucky, uh, it's not racist, but it's something, um, stereotype, <laughs> right? It's, uh, it's, a, it's a projection of American prosperity gospel against an enemy, a perceived enemy. And I hate it, right? It, mm. it, it, you often see white nationalists who will, at the same time that they believe a Christian prosperity gospel, also believe um, that the Jews are destroying everything that is truly American and Christian. And I don't know why those two linger close to one another like they do, but they are both um, uh, just dangerous, unholy, untrue to the God or the scripture that you and I are trying to lift up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How, I mean, how do you deal with it in, and I'll ask this question for myself too. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, Joel, but how do you deal with this kind of in your own life with your own you know, finances, so to speak. <laughs> well, um, so there's several interesting things about a about me and Jill. Um, uh, when Jill and I were young, married, dinks, dual income, no kids, uh, it was a wild ride. And then we had that first kid, and Jill's like, "Do you think I could stay home?" And I said, "I think so. Let's just try." Um, so we gave up her salary to live on mine alone and started raising one kid. That was a big change for us. Um, but we, we just, we changed our spending habits. Um, for a long time, I, I kept getting promoted in the engineering and sales and marketing world. Um, and I still tell people today that the most money I ever made in a single year was the year before I went to seminary. That was the highest salary that I've ever made in my life, uh, the year 2001. I've, I've made less than that ever since. So I went from six digits in the year 2001 to zero <laughs> the year 2002, and I dropped my full income and went to seminary. And Jill and I looked at each other and said, how are we going to do this? We said, I don't know, but we're going to do it. Um and since I've come out of seminary, I've never made that much again. Um, we, uh, the strange thing for pastors, Presbyterian pastors, our salaries are public information to the whole congregation. And then a large number of people, I, you know, more than a handful, 10, 12, probably know how much I give back to this ministry each month. So they have a sense of my tithing habits. Um, and meanwhile, Nobody else in this congregation is their salary public information, um, nor is their giving public information or even known by uh, uh, that same handful of folks. So there's this thing where the systems of church hold Presbyterian pastors anyway accountable to give back so that we're not hypocrites. I could give zero, mm. right? But people would know it and it would affect my... Um, my authenticity and my ability to lead them and to be sincere. So I give back and Jill and I give back. Um, but I, I can't preach that to the people if I'm not practicing it. So it's for me and Jill, it's, it's been hard at times. And we've, there've been even times where we thought we're going to have to change this. We're not going to be able to do this. We're, we're going to need relief here. And then we found a, a way to not um, to not sacrifice our giving back through churches or kingdom building organizations. Uh, we don't cut that um, any more or any less than we cut our own luxuries and privileges. Um, yeah. Anywhere else? Yep. What about you, and man? It, you How know, do you preach it? And how do you teach it? How do you embody it? What are the, the challenges that come at you when you talk about money or when you privately or personally um, do money? 
I mean, I, one of the challenges I have is, is what I said before, is that, you know, my, how do I express this? Let me think just for a second. Well, let, let me, you know, I, as you know, like, I like my things. Like, I, I am definitely a consumer. You are right? a toy like, and tech like, guy. Yes, you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I have a lot of musical instruments and the video game. You know, like, I like buying things. I do. Um, and I would like to believe, and I do believe, that uh, I give kind of an appropriate you know, a balanced amount back to my community, back to the world, back to organizations that my wife and I believe in, all of those things. Um, and I and I I preach similarly. You know, it, it's it's also harder too as religious institutions, like we as clergy, especially of smaller congregations, are sometimes tasked with being participants of our own fundraising for the for the synagogue. So like when we renovated our sanctuary three years ago and had to raise $1.2 million, like going up to congregants and asking them to consider for them sizable donations. And, um, you know, to, to and that there's tension because to a large degree, yes, it's absolutely benefiting our religious community and everything. But but it's also, um, you know, it's not quite the same as helping to solve hunger or homelessness, right? I mean, it's helping ourselves. It's building a beautiful synagogue that we want to sit in with, you know, state-of-the-art audio. I mean, it's not state-of-the-art, but it's, it's really good. Uh, but you know what I mean, right? And so um, – and it, like Judaism does not have like we don't preach l poverty, right? Like there, there's not a um, th there's not an idea that you're you know I I think it what's the expression in Christianity is it preference of the poor? What's that expression, Joel? Yeah, that's it. God has um a a, a preferential um, liking and attention. And effort towards the poor, and 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 I'm right. still on board with that. But it's not that God, yay, you're poor. God doesn't cheer that somebody is poor, nor does God expect people to be poor. God is mad as hell that the abundant resources God provided have been misused and misappropriated, so that some on this planet are so poor they can barely sustain themselves. And that's that's not God's fault. God provided more than enough. It's the rest of our fault for hoarding too much and not sharing and giving back uh, enough. There's enough. It's like it's the manna lesson, right? The the jerk faces. God told them, look on. The day before Sabbath, you can get two days' worth. And they're like, I don't believe you. And they got five days' worth. Well, imagine if we did that with money. Three days' worth spoils, and you can't have it, right? Okay, yeah. you tried to hoard it into your savings account or your IRA, and it just disappears because it's over the limit. And it goes to somebody who has nothing. And whoever had nothing had enough. And whoever had too much had enough. Imagine if we did that mm. with retirement accounts. Wow. That <laughs> Americans would die. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's good. Um Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of another connection kind of from the Torah or something that talks about, you know, the connection of Wealth. I mean, one thing that you do see in the Torah is, I mean, you, you see both. So, um, so Joel, it took 40 minutes, but now my brain's working a little bit more. So, you know, when Abraham and Lot uh, are living in the same place, they eventually have to separate because they each have too much stuff and there won't be enough room for both of them with all of their families and and everything they've acquired. And, you know, to some extent, and I've preached this in both directions, to some extent, this is a happy story because here you have people that perhaps could have been enemies that say, you know what, let's just split up blessings to you, blessings to me, go our separate ways. I wish you nothing but success. Um, but then there's the other thing of, well, it's really sad that they couldn't figure out a way 
to just live together. Like that's really sad. Um, so uh, <clears throat> I, I think why did they grow ultimately? That big? What's that? Why did they grow that big? Where they couldn't because they were both successful and they had they also had a lot of children. <laughs> Or, you know, the wives and children and, um, and like the, the progeny that came with them and, and everything. I mean, that's what the, that's what the Taurus says. So there's that. And on the other hand, on the flip side of that, there's Exodus when God commands the first building of the tabernacle, which, you know, rabbis like to joke that it's the first capital campaign, uh, in Exodus when God says, build me a sanctuary that I will dwell amongst them. And everyone brings, and, and oh, and the command is bring as your heart is so moved. So it's not under threat. It's not under duress. It's as your heart is so moved. And what's beautiful about this, and this is not an interpretation. This is actually the text in Exodus is, you know, artisans brought art, say, sculptors brought clay, people who had money brought gold. And so it's like everyone brought according to their own means and talent and People brought so much that Moses had to say, okay, enough, we got it. <laughs> like now it's time to build. We actually have what we want. And I think that's the goal is where people can and should appreciate the, the material wealth that they have. And they also can and should share it with others. And if everybody did that, we could say, okay, enough. You, you don't have to give it all away. You know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be hurting. We want you to enjoy the life that you've built. And, you know, you spent, I'm going to speak personally, you spent all this time like getting an education and getting a degree and having a job and working hard and making sacrifices. You absolutely should enjoy it. And you need to realize that it can't all be about your enjoyment. It has to be also used to bring peace and freedom and prosperity. And I'll use the word again, righteousness to others. If I think back through Isaiah or Ezekiel or any of the prophets, most of the time what they were mad about is the misuse of communal resources. Um, you just gathered up people to fight your battle and and the your people, our people died to give you leader more land, more control, more wealth and fame as opposed to to give us something more or you mm. david solomon oh my gosh your house is big enough to house 7000 people why why god never needed this god's favorite house was a tent that you carried with you everywhere you ever went why did you park yourself and so you could build big banks and bigger homes and bigger mansions. And why did you build your house before you built God's house? Uh, there was all kinds of angry prophets uh, pushing on the leadership for assuming it was okay to gather massive amounts of wealth to fewer and fewer people in charge. Meanwhile, people in the streets could not afford bread or water or the basics. So there was something about the prophetic voice that, and, and I think that's where we, we get God's preferential um, treatment of the poor. It, it's not about love of the poor, and it's not a judgment of money as a source of sin itself. It is the ridiculous human leader tendency to get some, to get more, to get a lot, and then to want even more to hoard even more. Mm. Oh my gosh, I'm successful now. I can keep going. And that story of the two successful people that had to separate from one another, that story breaks my heart because dadgummit, you don't need that much more. It was enough, people. Like, okay, send one of your sons to leave with 1,500 of your sheep and you stay with what what was enough for you. I I never get it. The The other one that just... Oh, drives me nuts is when American Christians particularly think that financial independence is holy in a way. Um, 
we we judge ah, yeah right yeah, yeah, yeah. we judge those who have enough and support themselves and don't go into debt as being more righteous than those who don't have enough and failed and get kicked out of their house and have a bunch of debt and have credit cards or whatever they we look at the set the latter as oh sin and the former as see they're doing life right that's god does not care about individual financial independence at, at all. God cares about communal financial health. And that Sabbath thing that you mentioned before, like, guess what, y'all? Every seventh year, you got to forgive every debt. That was not a benefit to the poor as much as it was a check on the wealthy. If If I could put you in debt for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, I sure, just make a little payment, interest only if you'd like, for the rest of your life. <laughs> and when you die, I get 100% of my property back. You just leased it from me for the cost of interest for a whole lifetime, and your kids get nothing. The the. Imagine yep. we would not have had a 2008 banking crisis if we thought like that. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, and, and I mean, and that's where kind of the the selfishness of not being willing to share or think that you will or one is willing, but maybe not willing enough. And I think that is the role of religion, or it's a role of religion, is to really push people to see that others' well-being is your well-being. It's it's not just that you should help others. It's that their their well-being actually is yours. But un- until people feel that intrinsically, that th- we still we still have that job to do. Okay. Qu- Weird question. Do you feel like in your congregation, the big givers are treated better, differently than the small or low givers? (laughs) Well, to an extent, but... No one, you know, so this is one of the reasons why I do not like to know the, you know, finance and to a lot of large degree aren't allowed to know, um, you know, individual financial contributions. Like unless you like, let's say you belong to Temple Joel and you asked to have a meeting with me, like unless you volunteered that information, I would have no reason to know it. And that that is purposeful so that. I treat each member with the same amount of attention and care and, you know, flexibility in terms of scheduling meetings or a lunch or anything like that. Um, And I'm not going to say but because it's not a but. The reality is, is that we have a budget and it needs to be met. And, you know, congregants, there are – how do, yeah, people are treated differently, but not from a standpoint of um, kind of they get more attention or 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 special rights or anything like that. But yeah, like when when we have a, a big donor that is thinking of leaving the congregation, like people are people will say, "Oh, well, you know, they're a big donor," and it's just something to consider. It doesn't mean we're going to treat them differently or not, but it's like. Okay, the reality is if this person leaves the congregation, like we have, you know, we need to figure something out. We're not going to completely bend over backwards and lose and forget about who we are or our ideals. Absolutely not. 
Um, but it is unfortunately a factor just by virtue that, you know, we are an organization that needs the generosity of its members in order to function. It's a weird place, isn't it? Um, I, so I've got – Oh, it's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got three little stories where tail wagged dog a little too much regarding money in a congregation. And then a way that I try to think of it, see if this works for you. One story is there was at my very first church going way back before I got there, there was a conversation about renovating the sanctuary. And somebody offered $10,000 to that effort if the carpet would be gold. And the the design committee refused the gift and they installed blue carpet. And that person was pissed Um, but they raised enough money to do it together, communally. And the person Uh wanted that to make that gift to have control, individual, personal control over the community. So in that case, community won, not money. Yay, right? That's a that's a win. Uh yeah, that's that's okay. That works for I'm you. with you. <laughs> there was another, yeah, I'm uh, with you. another case. That my, neither one of my last two congregations nor this one is am I allowed to know how much people give. And I don't think that's right. I think that I should know. Uh, but okay, we'll get there in a minute. Um, at my last congregation, I was told, hey, so-and-so I think is about to leave the church. And she's a really big giver. Now, I had never been told that a family was about to leave the church and I should go do something extra or special for them until that family was a really big giver. And of course, I will follow up with anybody who thinks they're going to leave the church over a stance or a sermon or an issue or a denominational conflict or whatever, or a dissatisfaction with a children and youth ministry problem, whatever. I'll follow up with all of that. But hey, community, we decide together what we do as church. And if somebody, small giver, big giver, no giver, decides to leave because we're going in a direction they don't want to go, we don't change direction just because they're going to stop giving. Now, later I learned out, I learned that they had an income because it was a very high executive in a large Georgia company of over $8 million a year. That was their family income. And their gift to the church was so small compared to that $8 million. But to the church, it was one of our largest gifts. Now, I tend to think of giving to church or to a congregation. I want to know if somebody's in one of six categories. I don't need to know how much. I need to know if they're in one of six categories. Are they a new giver? They've never given anything before, and they started giving something. That is balloons, confetti, party. Yeah. Wahoo. Totally. Are they an increased giver? Whatever they used to give, big, small, medium, I don't care. Did they increase what they used to give this year? Are they a stable giver? Are they a decreased giver? Have they stopped giving? They used to give regularly, and now they've stopped. They've suddenly gone to zero. Or the dreaded zero giver. That's six categories. And I think I should know every family in the church if you're in one of those six categories. Uh, Because that Mm -hmm. tells me where somebody is in their discipline of, of walking the life. If you're in one of the first three, a new, increased, or stable, wahoo. If you're a decreased, uh-oh, pastoral care. Did something happen? Somebody get fired? Somebody get sick? If you're a stopped giver, uh-oh, something really happened or you're really pissed. And if you're a zero giver, hey, I two cents. <laughs> Come on, just something. You can yeah. make yeah, it a yeah, habit yeah. to give back. I like that. I like that reframing because it's not about the money. It's about the kind of relationship and comparison. I like that. What else about money um, before we close up this can? Oh, I, I, I'm not sure I have anything else. 
I mean, ultimately, you know, this is a hackneyed line, but it's true, is each person's created in the image of God. And so one, you know, the, this goes back to even the poorest person gives tzedakah, because tzedakah, again, does not have to be money. So whereas, you know, someone who's a multimillionaire might be able to give money, another person might be able to give a lot of time or volunteer in our religious school or uh, even even come to adult ed and participate in a lively discussion that that gives others energy and inspiration. And that is something that I do see my role as being is helping people open their eyes to larger not larger, to more varied um, dimensionality of giving other than money. I mean, the money is the simple one. It's the one we use often. It's the one that's used, you know, when we name things like giving money for the renovation or for the new building expansion. Um, you know, I wish we kind of named, you know, the, 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 the best Hebrew school teacher of the year in some sort of way, in a way that was equivalent to money. Um, that I think that that's not how people's brains work. And I think that's something we kind of fight against. And it's one of the reasons for all of these Bible stories, regardless of what religious tradition you are, you're in because it, it again human nature of wanting to hoard wanting to have it for me and for my family and if you don't have it oh too bad um so that that's part of our role i i yes uh the tweet there might be something like um it's not only about the money with God. God does care about worship and caring and service and teaching and learning and and all that other stuff but God does also care about the money so don't use worship and service and teaching and caring as an excuse to give nothing. Money right. is one of the many disciplines, and the goal is to be well-rounded and, and fair to God in all of it. Um, I get I get folk who use, well, I do this, well, I do that, well, I do that, so I don't give any money. I've heard that story before in, in, as a pastor. No. You're, oh, yeah. you're coming to worship, you're going to a class, or you're teaching something, or you leading something, or you helping out on that mission project is not an excuse for you to give no money, right? It's Those are also ways that you give back, not, um, not receipts that exempt you from giving some of your, of your money. 100%. All right. Good talk. Yes, yeah, sir. Thank you, Bunches. All right. Let's talk soon and keep it real, everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the Real Religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to realreligionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.